Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmel. my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm great. How about you, Faisal? I'm doing well. Good. Christmas season is coming to us. Yeah. Whole bunch of events that we've had to participate in. Yeah. It's been fun. Tired. Tiring. <laughs> Tiring. But it's really enjoyable. And listen, uh, it looks like Santa has brought us a bit of an early present here on the markets. And I think that has been a bit of a sigh of relief uh, for many people. Um, so let's just hope that it continues to the balance of the year and everybody can enjoy their holiday season. And let's talk about why we saw a bit of a rally uh, this this week. Um, what was the commentary? And then we can kind of look back. But <clears throat> we've got a great show. And this is going to kind of be the beginning part of a two-part or two segments with uh, the Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC. He's going to talk about the opportunities, the risks, the problems with Canada. He's going to talk about the, the opportunities and the risks with the U.S. and the rest of the world. And he's going to give you, a, I, I'm going to ask him at least, a hint on where's the best place to invest for 2024. Yeah. And and it, I think it's worth noting to say that uh, that Benny Tal has been very accurate in uh, in his analysis. He's done a very good job. So you want to pay attention when Benny speaks because he has um, uh, he has been dialed in. Yes. More, more right than wrong, which right. is which is the key thing when you're looking at prediction, predicting right. and forecasting yep. of economic uh, of economic policy of the Federal Reserve, the monetary side of things, and the fiscal policy. Yeah. And what I think has been missed out of all of Benny's work is a lot of the conversation about the research that they do from a business perspective, small, medium-sized enterprises, which is 95% of the Canadian uh, yeah. economy yeah. Uh, versus the larger corporations. But he does touch on, and he'll, especially for Albertans, I like this one, what his view on commodities are. You bet. Because that'll be a, an interesting piece, not only from the companies that are, are uh, employing people here, but also the revenue that the provincial government will be receiving. There's going to be a hint. He's going to talk about uh, commodities, and I think people can kind of put it together. But what could be the impact for a province like Alberta? For sure. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, the market this week. You, you gave a little hint there. I mean, since the beginning of November, we've had a very strong rally, and uh, you know, we're in the seventh week of this, and and we got um, we got some important news again this past week that extended that rally, uh, not just in the United States, but you know, we got some indication of what Europe is doing as well. Yeah, and so let's the, the attention all eyes were on the U.S. Yeah. Yes, Europe announced their their information. Not much of a market mover globally, right? Uh, a mover in Europe for sure. Uh, but when you look at what the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, discussed, and, and whenever the Federal Reserve announces their rate decision, announce or has their their um, commentary along with questions by the media. There's three parts to their piece. One is the facts. Yep. The second is the forecast. And the third is the reading between the lines. Yep, the interview. Yep. And, and that interview piece where they get a lot of questions from the media allows you to kind of read between the lines based on uh, on uh, the responses. And let's not let's not kid ourselves. Um, the Federal Reserve is very poised on what they have to stick to their talking points. They don't. They don't yeah. really deviate. You're trying to trump, you know, uh, trump them a bit or get them off off their off their talking points. But they're pretty much well rehearsed on what they're going to say and how they're going to get back to their key points. Every new central banker gets caught once in their initial interviews by the media and never again. And that's true. Of, and they learn. Yeah, they learn. That's right. And the Federal Reserve, when they respond. If you read between the lines, you'll kind of get a hint of a difference or a change. Yeah. Let's start off with the facts. No interest rate change, right? right? They're not cutting. They're not raising interest rates. No surprise there. Uh, and that was expected. Yeah. Then let's go on the forecast. In fact, now the forecast amongst the committee is that they're going to see 
two to three interest rate cuts happening next year. Well, they, they increased it, didn't they? So they actually increased it from their previous dot plot forecast of two rate decreases, two cuts next year, to three. So directionally, okay, that would tell you that they see the efforts that they've made so far to slow the economy and take inflationary demand out is actually working at a pace quicker than what they thought at the last meeting. Correct. So now you go into the, you know, the what you have to read between the lines. Yeah. There was a lot of questions about recession. Yeah. And <clears throat> in previous meetings, the Federal Reserve had no problem talking about recession and the possibility of a recession. Right. The likelihood of a recession has diminished considerably in the commentary. Not in the bond market, not the currency market, right. but in the commentary. Yep. So if you read between the lines, the Federal Reserve says there's a risk of, of recession, and there always is a risk of recession every year. But the risk of recession has gone down from meeting over meeting. Right. So that's what you read between the lines. So I think that's very interesting, and that kind of gives us the, the overview of why we've had a, a good run in the last week or so. When you take it a bit further out and you go throughout the calendar year, <clears throat> Let's talk about some of the key learnings from an investor perspective, sure. right? Regardless if you're in retirement, transitioning to retirement, there's been some key learnings as an investor in 2023. Let me start. The one thing that I think that investors did in 2023 is early panic. Okay. So... We got inflation numbers that were really high. 2022 wasn't a very good year on average for investors. Uh, and there was a, a lot of fear. And so we got early panic. We saw an increase in investing in money market funds, high interest savings accounts, GICs. Uh, and that kind of just rolled a lot of the fear. Well, if I, I can do better in that yeah. than I can in the markets. Right. And that caused... I call it the early panic. So the learning for 2023 was when you're when you have this fear and you don't have structure and discipline, you will lose opportunity. And just look at how the global markets have done versus high interest savings accounts versus GICs in 2023 alone. You've lost on opportunity or capital. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's one thing that you noticed for 2023? Uh, that was a learning for investors. So there's a couple of things. I'm going to start with the first one, um, which is a relearning. It's not a learning, and people need to relearn it every single time, but it is worth reflecting on at this point, and that is the, um, everything goes in a cycle, right? And so what we saw is we got to the end of an economic cycle, and there was uncertainty driven by, and it doesn't really matter the events. We've talked about what caused this event. Um, and that tends to create uh, instability, and that's volatility, and that's scary. So feeding on what you've said, we got to the end of this cycle. There's uncertainty, and therefore there's volatility, um, which is a normal part of the cycle. And at some point, the cycle will move from an end to this most recent period to the beginning of a new period. And to your point, and this is coming from the risk guy on our team, people have to be very, very disciplined about not responding um, to the recency bias, what's happening right now. So yeah. we need to relearn the fact that there's cycles, right? When we feel the worst, it's not going to last forever. And just as much when we feel the best, that's not going to last forever as well. When you look at 2023 from an investor perspective, you can also see um, 
where the errors were made by the markets mm -hmm. or by investors. And Correct. here's what I, I want to focus on. I think a big learning for investors for 2023 is there is a big difference between throwing your money at an investment and hoping it goes up to actually investing in companies. Yes. The quality of companies that you invest in, the quality of the asset allocation that you're in, and the structure to your overall objectives to reach your goals okay. is something that <clears throat> if you just focused on that and stayed to that course, you would not be damaged in regards to rate of return in 2023. Right. If you did the same thing in 2022, you may have had a hit. Right. And so staying disciplined over a key period of time we say five years, seven years, whatever it may be, will give you that approach to the rate of return that you need to reach the goals that you want to achieve in your plan. Yeah. And I think too many investors deviated from that, either speculating or just throwing money and hoping it goes up without understanding how you actually invest. Right. And I'm going to feed on that for my last comment, and we're running out of time here, is, is market timing. A lot of people um, speculated on market timing. We did a presentation with our client base not long ago, and we really we looked over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. You take out the top five or 10 trading days in that period, and you can permanently damage your return, your strategy over time. And we saw that in the last seven weeks, right? We saw very, very rapid increase when the market decides to turn. Market timing is a very, very difficult proposition. Invest in long-term strategy, not market timing. We've had a um... Uh, an exciting two years and an exciting year this year. You're calling it's, it exciting? Well, no. <laughs> For on-air purposes, we'll call it that. Okay. I might use a different word if it was just you and I chatting. <laughs> uh, but listen, we gotta we got to try to make some sense of that and talk a little bit about where we're going next. Uh, I would say there's been some um, developments with the central banks worldwide that um, you know are probably of interest and of note that we should uh, we should talk a little bit about. And how's Canada going to do? Yeah, let's start off when we when we bring on our guests. Let's kind of break it down into two areas. Of course, the, uh, we want to look at what what's happening in Canada, where we're headed uh, economically, and then we'll kind of go in the next segment talk about U.S. Yep. and the world and what the uh, the forecast is. And this is one individual who's been on our on our show many times has also made his mark. I think throughout all of his peers for how accurate he is and his research uh, with his team. We've got Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets. Benny, welcome to the show. A pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's maybe start, as we said, um, in Canada, uh, Benny. We've, uh, of course, just gone through the most or the year-end uh, Bank of Canada decision. Um, I, I'm wondering what uh, what you took from that and how it's setting us up for 2024 in Canada. Yes, so we have to realize that the Bank of Canada is a biased bank. You know, you wake them uh, up in the middle of the night and you ask them recession versus inflation. They will take a recession any day. Let's establish that. So they are biased. Therefore, they prefer to overshoot as opposed to undershoot. So therefore, if the Bank of Canada was an AI machine, they would have stopped 25 or maybe 50 basis points ago. But they are overshooting maybe on purpose because, again, they know how to fight recessions. They don't know how to fight inflation. And I know that many of your uh, listeners are very disappointed by now because everybody promised them a recession and we didn't get one. So where is this recession? Well, I think we are in a recession. We are in a per capita recession. GDP per capita is down. 
consumption per capita is down. The only reason why we didn't get a real recession so far is the fact that we got one million people into this country. Uh, that's not a way to raise economic growth and establish this kind of healthy economy. Also, India has a lot of people. That's not the way to work the economy. You need per capita to rise, and that's not where we are. Another factor that was very interesting during the course of the year was uh, what we discussed in previous conversations, the $165 billion of excess savings that the consumer were holding. And therefore, the Bank of Canada was raising interest rates. The consumer were use, was using that uh, excess uh, savings. And the, the, in many ways, let's put it this way, the Bank of Canada was impotent in its ability to influence the economy. Now, this excess savings is what? Zero. Zero. We basically utilize that. So now the Bank of Canada is more powerful, and that's why I think that they're overshooting. So with the overshoot that you're predicting, what's the impact to the average Canadian? What's the impact to to the businesses? And where are the opportunities with this with this overshoot? So first of all, let's discuss the Bank of Canada. I think they are done. I think they are done. They are not going to raise interest rates, although they will keep you guessing until the last minute because that's their job, to keep you guessing. They cannot tell you everything is fine because if everything is fine, the 10-year rate will go down like that and that will sabotage their uh, efforts. So they will keep you guessing until the last minute. Now, they are done. The question is, when are they cutting? Now, there are two ways to overshoot. One is to raise very high. They are doing it. But also to keep it high for longer than needed. And I think they will not touch interest rates until May, June of next year. That will be the first cut. So we have to get used to another six months of relatively elevated interest rates before they start going down. And when they go down, it will be a relatively slow process, 150 basis points during the course of 2024 in the second half, and another, let's say, 50, 75 basis points in 2025. So it will be a relatively slow process, but it will help. So it will be a tale of two halves, if you wish. The first half is still a challenge. People will have to deal with high interest rates. When they renew their mortgages, it will be relatively expensive. And then interest rates will start going down and the economy will start moving in the right direction, especially in 2025. It also means that the labor market will not be as inviting as it used to be. So if you were thinking of quitting your job to get another job, it was okay six months ago, even three months ago. Now, not so much. The labor market is not so great. So we have to consider this as well. When you look at the business uh, um, community and how things are, we'll start off with your small, medium-sized enterprises, and then we'll go into the, the publicly traded companies. Where's the risk and opportunity given what the, the prognosis is for, for 2024? Yes. Yeah, so small businesses are very sensitive to higher interest rates and therefore the pain will be there. Remember also they have to pay back their loans to the government. So I suggest that you will see some delinquency rates rising, some increase in business bankruptcies. Remember, in the business bankruptcy rise every year and then fall every year. It depends on the situation when interest rates go up. Uh, we haven't seen companies exiting the market during COVID. Why? Because they got money from the government. So the normal behavior of the bankruptcy cycle was interrupted. That's going to change. So I will not be surprised if over the next year, we're going to see an increase in business bankruptcies. It's already happening. But at the same time, we also have to realize 
that if you have a situation in which you are sensitive to higher interest rates, you are already there. You are at an eighth inning. Wait a little bit more. And by the second half of the year, there will be many opportunities into 2025. There is a lot of pent-up demand in the market waiting for interest rates to go down. So I suggest that there are some opportunities in the market down the road. Your expectations um, for inflation, I guess, going forward through 2024 and 2025 would be of interest. And and then you're talking about the tale of two halves next year, Benny. Your, your thoughts on where the what the economic data is telling us about uh, the Canadian economy? Yes, it's all about inflation, of course. Uh, and really, it's not about inflation. It's about the cost of bringing inflation down to 2%, as we discussed in previous conversations. The Bank of Canada will do whatever it takes to bring it down to 2%. And we can discuss until we are blue in the face. To what extent 2% is the right number? I don't think it's the right number. Doesn't make any difference. You need like 500 PhD thesis to convince the Bank of Canada to change this number. Not going to happen anytime soon. So what I'm telling you is that we are stuck with this 2%. So can we reach 2%? I say yes. All those inflationary forces that were uh, unfolding, now the opposite is happening. I see disinflationary forces. The commodity market, remember, Inflation is the rate of change. It's not the level of prices. So we go to the supermarket. We are overwhelmed by how expensive food is, but it's irrelevant. It's to what extent the inflation rate of food is going higher or slower. And it's slower, actually. Same goes for, for uh, energy. So commodities is actually disinflationary. You look at supply chain. Supply chain is back to normal, actually better than normal. That's a major disinflationary forces in many dimensions. And clearly, when you take out interest payments on mortgages out of the mortgage calculations, guess where inflation is? 2% already. We are already there. And that's why we, be, we believe that we are overshooting a little bit. And the labor market is normalizing. The labor, labor market is normalizing. The number of um, vacancies is now back to 2019 level. All these 1 million vacancies, you cannot find people, gone. So the market is normalizing. The unemployment rate is semi back to normal, starting to rise. This is good news when it comes to the Bank of Canada. We have just about a minute to go, uh, Benny, before we go to commercial break. <laughs> uh, we've been talking about fifth, uh, monetary policy. We've been talking about the economy. But there's another side of the equation, which is fiscal policy. We are entering into a, 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 an election in 2025. Uh, that's when a lot of governments start to spend money prior to the election. What are your thoughts about um, the, the fiscal side of it and how it may impact or ruin the plans of the Bank of Canada? Yeah, it, it's already a factor. I believe that the Bank of Canada raised the last 25 basis points just because of fiscal policy, because people were getting checks in the mail. We all know the story. So it's really sabotaging the Bank of Canada a little bit. If you look at the, the budget deficit in Canada relative to the U.S., we are doing relatively okay. And it seems that this election will be about uh, not spending too much and not raising the debt level. So I don't see huge spending going in any significant way. The um, budget uh, deficit uh, as a share of GDP will be one, one and a half percent. So we can live with it. In the US, it's different. Faisal, we're talking about uh, how, you know, how are we finishing up this year? What, what does the future hold for us? And we've covered, I think, in great detail uh, Canada. But the real driving force from a global perspective is what's going on in the United States. Yeah, and I think people forget that, you know, when we, we just live in our silo of Canada, the big influence that is around the world is the United States. And a lot of the media attention is to the United States as well. So we try to think about what they're going to do, how it's going to impact us. But I think there's a different change in tone, especially in the last Federal Reserve commentary. Mm, yeah. uh, and and the I think when you start listening to between the lines, you're reading between the lines of what's being said, 
there's a bit of a hint of a change happening. I, I want to confirm if my my hunch right. is is accurate with what the data and and the research is showing. And that's why we have Benjamin Tall here. Benny, let's go right into what your your thoughts were throughout 2023 with the U.S. Federal Reserve, and, and what are what are your views of what they're doing and what can they be doing for 2024. Yes. So let's start with the notion that uh, the gap between the Fed funds rate and the Bank of Canada rate is too narrow. Usually it's 75, 100 basis points. Now it's like 25, 50 basis points. So it's either the Fed is undershooting or the Bank of Canada is overshooting. And as I told you, I think that the Bank of Canada is overshooting. And that's why the Bank of Canada will be cutting earlier than the Fed. That's one thing. The other is that you look at GDP. We are basically at zero. Over the past six months, nine months, we are basically at zero, very close to a recession, per capita recession. The U.S., four and a half, five percent, like China. Crazy. And the question is why? There are many reasons. But first of all, it's the sensitivity to higher interest rates. Canada is more sensitive than the U.S. because we have more debt. We know that. And our mortgages are for five years, they're for 30 years. So in Canada, people are starting to save because they know that they have to reset their mortgages. The U.S., wake me up when it's relevant. So their savings is actually going down. The consumer is stronger. So the sensitivity to higher interest rates is definitely higher in Canada they're, they're, uh, relative to the US. The consumer is doing better. Fiscal policy. If you think that Trudeau is spending a lot, try Biden. We are talking about 4 or 5% of GDP deficit. So that's a major injection of energy to the economy. And uh, so we have a situation which uh, overall the US uh, is doing relatively okay. The labor market is relatively strong. The consumer is there. And productivity in the U.S. is rising by 3%. In Canada, it's negative. So all those forces suggest that Canada is lagging behind the U.S. Fine. However, the U.S. is going to slow down. Fiscal policy next year will be basically zero in terms of the contribution. The savings rate cannot continue to go down. In fact, it will have to go up. And productivity cannot improve more than 3.5% because it's very difficult to do. So all those forces that were injecting energy into the U.S. will not be there. The U.S. will slow down to about 1%. That's actually something that will give you the second leg of the decline in long-term interest rates. That's crucial. So a slowing U.S. economy will be actually good news for the economy and for the Bank of Canada and for the Fed. So we are in a situation which bad news is good news. Namely, the slowing economy is actually good news for uh, the Fed and for the Bank of Canada, because otherwise it means that you are f- losing the fight against inflation. So I suggest that the labor market in the US will soften and we expect to see some softening in the first half of uh, 2024, but we don't see the Fed cutting until, let's say, September of 2024, because they are still ahead of us. The Bank of Canada will be the pioneer there. The Fed will cut later. So we see the Fed cutting only by 75 basis points during the course of 2024. The theme that we heard, Benny, through 2023 has been soft landing, no landing, recession in the United States. Uh, The debate's still out there. We're hearing more and more. And this is where I was saying, reading between the lines, the Federal Reserve in the last communication kind of hinted toward that may not be a recession. Did I read that right? Is Is that hunch correct? And what are your thoughts about a potential recession for the U.S.? You know what? It's a much ado about nothing. It's really, it's a recession, no recession, who cares? Depends what kind of a recession. That's, I think, the way to look at it. So soft landing and mild recession, same thing. So if you have 0.3% GDP growth or negative 0.3%, same thing. If you tell me we're talking 2, 3, 4% negative, that's the real recession. For this, you need a significant overshooting. 
And that's a risk to the economy. Namely, if uh, all those scenarios about inflation are not going through, namely, you have a situation in which inflation is more sticky than expected, service inflation, wages are rising, unions, all this business, you have a situation in which inflation will surprise on the upside, the Fed, the Bank of Canada will have to continue to raise interest rates, that's a recession. That's a real recession. If you don't do that, mini recession, mild recession, soft landing, call it whatever you want, the same thing. With what's happening in the U.S. and, and, and your, your, your forecast for the U.S., especially with interest rate decisions, which countries get the biggest impact, negative or positive, with the Federal Reserve? Where's the areas of, of risk outside of the U.S. because of the U.S.? First of all, not because of the U.S., because of itself. China is slowing down. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm not bullish on commodity prices, because demand from China will slow down. They have major issues there in terms of real estate, in terms of the consumer not taking over, losing export market share. So that's something that China will be there regardless of what's happening in the U.S. And clearly, a slowing U.S. economy is reducing their exportability in China. So that's something that will impact emerging markets that depend on the U.S. and clearly China. And that's where I'm for the first six months of the year, not extremely optimistic. What about if we can extend it, just a quick comment on um, outside of that. So uh, Europe, of course, we've had some uh, some guidance from the ECB and uh, central banks uh, in Europe. Uh, your thought then where Europe is in this whole process relative to North America? I think uh, Europe is doing relatively okay compared to where it could have been. Remember, the Russia situation, the energy, the dependency on Russia, it seems that Europe and Germany in particular were able to find a way to manipulate their way into some supply that uh, is not uh, risking their economy the way it was uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago. So I think actually with the ECB done, the euro actually gaining some ground over the American dollar, overall I think that the euro, the euro will do not great, but fine in the second half of the year. I still see another quarter or two of weak economy. The labor market is still struggling. But beyond that, I see a recovery in the second half of the year following the example of the US. If you were to look around the world uh, and you were to rank for opportunity of growth, I know we're talking about growth in a, in a declining economic situation. Where would, you, where would you rank the top three or which countries or regions would you say are top three? You know what? I, I'm bullish on the U.S. I think the U.S. will do fine. I think that productivity in the U.S. is moving in the right direction. They will slow down now because they need to slow down. I think that the minute interest rates in the U.S. go down, you will have a significant injection of energy into the U.S. economy. They are very well positioned to take advantage of lower interest rates. Uh, their vulnerability to higher interest rates was not there, and their ability to take advantage of lower interest rates is higher than in Europe and definitely Canada. So I will go with the U.S. absolutely, followed to an extent by Canada, and especially if you look at manufacturing in Canada, that will benefit from offshoring and the deglobalization that is happening, I think I would like to be in some pockets in Canada, including, by the way, energy. Okay, we've got just one minute left, Benny. Uh, what what would you advise advisors to keep their eye on? So, um, what what gets what makes this a worse situation, in your opinion? One or two economic data points we got to watch. I think two things. First of all, uh, if you look at the trends that are happening in the economy, deglobalization, just-in-case inventories, the labor market that is very tight, the green, they're all putting negative uh, pressure on profitability of profit margin. There is no question about it. So companies will have to struggle with mar margins. So I will focus on companies that can actually maintain margins through technology. So first of all, expect earning growth to be revised downward. Don't be surprised by that. But also look at the uh, 
technology and companies that use technology to offset the decline in margins. And I think that's something, those are the winners of the, of the future. Terrific. Benny, I want to thank you as always for taking some time with us uh, today and helping, uh, I guess, explain and put some context around what's happened and what we expect uh, going forward. Thanks for your time today. A pleasure. Good luck. Thank you very much. We've been joined by Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist, CIBC World Markets. Let's help people year-end tips. How do they set themselves up for retirement success in 2024? Yeah, so let's let's break it down to the four key areas that people are concerned about uh, when they're in retirement. Let's start with one of the key things is, will I be able to grow my investments over time to fight the of inflation? Yeah. Uh, because I still need the growth to live off of. Right. So I think it's going to be a long period, long of time. period of time. Yeah. Right. So I need that growth. Yeah. Okay. So the the tip for 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 next year for your growth side is is that you need the structure and discipline around a key areas, and we call them the five pillars. The reason why we break down the five pillars is because if you look at each pillar, they have significant importance of not only an individual investor but institutional pension plans have been doing this for decades. Mm -hmm. So. When you are investing in a five-pillar approach, Canadian equities or Canadian dollared equities, U.S. dollared equities, and that could be internationally included in there, you need some fixed income, you need alternative strategies, either alternative yielding, alternative trading. Mm -hmm. When you put those together in, in, a, in an appropriate mix given your objectives and you stay structured in that manner and you stay disciplined to that approach, you are taking on way more return for way less risk than just investing in an index or a market. And so the big tip is the structure and discipline around a five pillar investment approach will give you the results that you need without taking substantial amount of risk. Right. Okay. Let sense. me bring it to you. Good tip. Another, another tip that we want to talk about for individuals who are transitioning or living in retirement is income. Yeah. What's your tip for income for, okay. for this year? So first of all, the first tip is that your income investments to support the predictability and sustainability of, of what you need for income is different than your growth strategy. Okay, they're not the same buckets. That's the number one tip. There's a different investment strategy for the different goals and objectives of the income bucket, yeah. which are predictability, sustainable, sustainability, tax efficiency to the extent we can get it and liability matching for the cash flow that you need. You said liability matching. Help people understand what you mean by right. that. Uh, much like what a pension plan does, Faisal, we talk about what is your lifestyle? What is the income gap? What's the cash flow that you're going to need to support that lifestyle? And then where are we going to get that income from? And I'll come back to that in a minute. And then make sure that you've got your income bucket investment strategy matching what that cash flow is over the time period that you want. Match the liability, what you, call, you and I will call income or what our investors call income, okay? And match the time and the strategy to what that cash flow need is. So let me get, make it a little bit easier for some of the people who are hearing this for the first time. If you need $50,000 a year from your savings, have a certain amount of time, and we'd say five, 10 years, whatever that time frame yep. is, dedicate that in a strategy where you're not taking stock market volatility, Correct. first of all. Just offset inflation, right? Preserve the purchasing power of that capital over the time. And so you want to have money coming to you, $50,000 indexed to inflation every single year. That's the matching of the cash flow to what you need. The rest goes into the growth bucket. Correct. So matching liability. And one more tip. Yep, okay. go for it. Because an income, so once you've got that structure built, one of the, you know, the number one things is not all cash flow is created equally from a tax perspective. Say that one more time, Dave, it's important. 
not all cash flow is created equally from a tax perspective. Exactly. Okay? And so uh, tax is a reality and none of us live on pre-tax income. So when you're doing your income planning, we live on after-tax income, optimizing where you're getting your cash flow from, from a tax perspective to ensure you've got the maximum amount of dough in your pocket to spend and enjoy that lifestyle. That's one of the biggest things that we work on with clients. Where do I get the cash flow from? Yeah, you want to keep more in your pocket, less going to Ottawa for sure. Um, what else? I'm going to I'm gonna take on a topic that I think is going to be the most underrated, underplanned uh, when it comes to people's retirement, and that's healthcare. Mm. We are seeing a shift in government policy, intentional or unintentional is not the point, but it's happening. More and more Canadians are paying out of pocket for the quality of care that they want as they, as they go through retirement. And what hasn't been planned for is that additional cost that you may need, and it may not come in one point in time. It may come in phases throughout your retirement as you adjust and meet the needs of the care that you need, either by retrofitting a home, getting care in a home, going to a home, all those pieces have a cost factor to it. Mm -hmm. And what people forget or, or neglect in their planning is that they do not look at the additional cost of outsourcing if something was to happen. If I have responsibilities in my home and mm -hmm. I can't do those responsibilities, Who's going to do them? Right. Because those responsibilities still need to be taken care of. Right. And if I want someone outside of free labor, like my, my family, it's going to cost. Yep. If you don't plan for that, if you don't put that as part of your retirement strategy, that could really impact the opportunities to have that kind of care Correct. and provide the lifestyle and comfort for your family as well. Right. So I think the most underrated part of a plan going into 2024 is not talking about healthcare and not having a written strategy for that care. I think you're uh, you're you're on a key point, um, uh, a key point on there, and that that bleeds into kind of the legacy planning, right? So there's another area. Retirement isn't just about money, right? Money's important, but you've you've talked about health and family, right? And so the success, uh, I think, uh, in part in retirement, I have a lot of conversations with clients about. What, if any, support do I want to provide to my children? Yeah. Are there gifts that I want to give during my lifetime or when I pass? And there's two types of people, and, and unfortunately, we see um, negative outcomes all the time with this, but money can control people or people can control money. And so I don't think enough thought is given to this notion that if you have amassed wealth over your, your lifetime and you're, you know, you're not going to spend it all, you, you have this responsibility to transition that wealth in a way that uh, preserves your family, protects people, okay? You have to educate them along the way. And then you've got this notion of tax again, right? So at the end of the day, if you're transitioning wealth uh, and you don't plan it well, you may be giving a significant chunk away to Ottawa and Edmonton in this case versus to the real beneficiaries. The impact of failing to plan and failing to execute mm -hmm. I think is a, a key tip for all of these areas. If it's growing your investments, income that you need throughout your retirement, preparing and having a plan for your healthcare needs in the future, and or in the event of you want to giving a gift while you're alive or upon your death. It's not just putting something in writing and saying, here's my plan. Right. It is time for execution. Right. And how do you execute? 
requires that attention in the new year. So uh, that's the key thing that I think people need to understand that when you're looking at these four key areas, the execution of that is more important yeah. than just bringing up the plan. Now, we already know only 25% of Canadians actually have a plan outlining all those four areas. Right. Okay. So if you're already at 25, 90% of that, of that plan is execution. Right. So that's the key tip for all these areas is the execution of that plan. Dave, I think when you look at, at, at the, the coming year and the opportunities that are, are available for individuals, it's not about picking the right stock. Right. It's not about getting the next best uh, uh, company that's gonna you know, really in, increase your wealth. It's, it's about having the lifestyle that you wanna have and mitigating all the risks that you don't need to take on. Correct. And I think that's a key thing that people can look at and that's the execution part for, for, the, for the coming year. Okay, now we're gonna talk about these four areas. We're gonna talk about our, our solution to the problem of retirement and how do you get there with the least amount of risk. Mm -hmm to everything that can come in your way. And we're going to discuss that at our upcoming seminar on Tuesday, January 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Country Hills Golf Club. Now, you do need to reserve your seats for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. I think this show is timely in that we're going into the holiday season. The holidays is a time of uh, you know friends and family, and it's a good time to reflect on what you want for not just yourself, but for your family, and then get down to the planning in early 2024 and make sure that you can execute on that strategy in a way that makes sense for you. Okay, I want to thank everybody uh, for joining uh, Faisal, myself, uh, and the rest of the team at PKAG for, uh, for today's discussion. Uh, we look forward to joining with you, uh, speaking with you next week here on QR Calgary and More Than Money. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.